Welcome, everybody. Uh, we are so glad that you are here. We are glad that you can celebrate Resurrection Sunday with us. Uh, as is expected, we will be preaching this week on the resurrection. And so we have several texts that we will be reading from. They are in your bulletin, and they are in the right order. So I'm going to ask Rachel to come up and read God's Word for us. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 28, 1 to 9, and then from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 15, and 19 to 24. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, as he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his comings those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. This is the word of the Lord. He is risen. On those three words hang the faith of over a billion people who believe in Jesus. If those words are not true, over a billion Christians are deceived. He is risen. On those three words hang the destiny of every single one of us who is listening right now. Every one of you has asked, or will ask, or will be asked, the question implicit in these words. Every single one. At some point, every Christian has had to ask, is he risen? when your faith seems not to have answers to the challenges or the suffering in your life, 
When tragedy makes you wonder if God is good or loving, you wonder, does God really love us enough? Did Jesus really love us enough to die? Is he risen so I can know that it is true? The answer, he is risen, is the answer to every skeptic's question about whether God loves us. Because if he is risen, then he is who he said he is, the one who died for you. Some of you who are here who are not Christians think you have not asked that question. I understand that. One day, though, you will face God. For it is given to everyone to die and then to face God. And God will ask you, what do you think of Jesus? And you may say, what? What would you say? Something like, I've never believed in him. By which you are saying, is he risen? I don't think so. You see, every one of us, Every one of us has this question in front of us to be asked and to be answered. Because if Jesus is risen, then a whole lot of what our culture tells us to be true is untrue. And a whole lot of what we think to be false is actually the truth. Is he risen? He is risen. Therefore, the world is vastly different than what we are told. More importantly, Jesus is vastly different than we think he is. Vastly different is Jesus, filled with an infinite glory, an infinite majesty, an infinite goodness, an infinite mercy, an infinite grace, an infinite love. That is what this text tells us. Easter is filled with wonder and joy and glory because Easter is about Jesus who is wonder and joy and glory incarnate. Let us look at some of his glory. Today we're going to quickly look at just two things. Firstly, the glory that Jesus has and secondly, the glory that Jesus shares. The glory that he has that we see from here and the glory that he shares. The first text we read is from Matthew's gospel. It is chapter 28. It is the last chapter. And it recounts the events of the first Easter Sunday. Jesus was nailed to a cross on the previous Friday afternoon, the afternoon of the Jewish Passover, probably around 33 AD. This is now Sunday morning. Our text tells us it's just before dawn. And it opens with women, followers of Jesus, some of his closest disciples, wanting to visit the grave site to honor him. Mark's account, we're looking at Matthew's, Mark's account says they have spices with them to anoint him as a way of honoring him in his death. They were the first to see the tomb empty. They were the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Now that means very little to us because in our culture, women are equal to men, equal in dignity, value, esteem, legitimacy, credibility. But in that day, women were not allowed to testify in legal cases because in that day, women's testimony in important matters was not believed. So in that day, to have a woman be the first witness is a dumb way to create a myth. It's in fact the stupidest way to try and spin history your way. This isn't spinning 
This has all the earmarks of gritty, real history. The reason all of the gospel said that the women were the first witnesses is because they were. It just happened that way. Too many people knew it happened that way, and so they just said it the way it was. And that's the way it was. All the gospels record women being the first testimony, uh, the first witnesses. And here we see the women encountering an angel. Actually, there were two angels, John tells us. But in the history of, the, of that day, if only one of the two spoke, only one of the two needed to be put into the historical account, and that's how Matthew does it. And this angel is sitting on a rock that blocked the entrance to the tomb, but the rock no longer blocks it because he has moved it. These rocks, by the way, were so heavy it took 20 people to move them. But the angel had moved it and was sitting on it. He was to their right, says another gospel account, Mark. And the Roman guards who were there were terrified. For those of you who want to know history, a Roman guard is a minimum of four, usually eight to 12. So we think six to eight probably were guarding this tomb. And they're terrified because this supernatural event has happened. They're astonished as you and I would be because miracles don't happen every day, do they? They don't. But something extraordinary is happening right in front of them. And, it, and if you're not familiar with Christianity and you think miracles are a bit cringy and you're a little bothered by the presence of an angel, this seems too mythical or superstitious for you, I need to tell you to think more deeply about what we're talking about. You're here because you're wondering if God exists. You're here if you're wondering if Jesus rose from the dead. We're already in the realm that supersedes and transcends natural scientific laws. We're already into the realm of the paranormal, the supranormal, the supernatural. So if you're examining this, you already are open to the idea that if God exists, God-like things will happen. And when do you think God would do something God-like and different and supernatural, if not for the raising of His Son from the dead to declare to the world that His Son is who He said He was. This is just the reasonable place for an unreasonable thing to happen. If the God who rules the cosmos exists, it's pretty logical that He would send one of His messengers from His place of residence to ours to tell us and show us what had happened. And that's indeed what the angel does. As a messenger of God, He says something Something extraordinary has happened. And the angel is there as a messenger simply to make sure it gets properly attested to and understood. I want you to see what happened and understand its meaning. And so he says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he say." I will tell you its meaning, and I will show you its historical truth. The rabbi who claimed to be our savior, who claimed to be God in human flesh, who did miracle after miracle and then said to his skeptical critics when they refused to believe his miracles, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days I will raise it up. That Jesus did what he promised he would do. He has risen from the dead. Men and women, behold his glory. He is the only begotten Son of God the Father. Behold the unique glory that is Jesus. 
Jesus is not some good moral teacher. He's not just some spiritual guru with wise sayings. He is who he said he is. The creator of the universe come down into human form, into human history to do the one stupendous thing that only God could do to reverse the curse of history and the cosmos. Started by the autonomy, the independence, the rebellion of you and me and our forefathers, Adam and Eve. And he came to rescue us from the consequence of sin and evil, to recreate the world that had been created in purity and beauty and perfection, but to first pay the debt that you and I had accrued by our own selfishness and sin. I was talking to someone and they said to me, I think Jesus is just a perfect human. And I had thought that too. But men and women, although Jesus showed us what a perfect human could be, he's so much more. Jesus came to show us God. John 1.14, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, who is at uh, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He's God, not just the perfect human. He is God become human. Well, you might say, well, he doesn't really, he didn't really look like God. They saw him as a human. I understand God to be some kind of everywhere, immense, absolute, unmowable being. Yes, but this is the God come to us that we may see him. God who comes to you as you are in your finite nature, in your inability to understand things that aren't physical, that you can't see and smell and taste and touch. He came so you could see him, hear him, if you were close enough, smell him and touch him. This is the God who comes to us in all of our human physicality, materiality, and weakness. But he's also the God who comes to us in all of our spiritual weakness as selfish sinners who need grace. He comes to us in our human need because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and men and women herein is the particular glory of Jesus, God the Son. It is the particular, peculiar glory of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity to become human. No other member of the Trinity became human. To manifest the infinite glory of God in human flesh. To combine humanity and divinity in one person. We see God restraining his omnipotence and his infinitude by becoming embodied and weak and vulnerable. And we're called to ask why. Because it is the particular glory of God the Son to show the grace of God in the particular way that Jesus did. What kind of God? Find me another God in all the religions of the universe who is infinitely powerful and puts that aside. What kind of God becomes weak and vulnerable and willing to be rejected, tortured, and crucified? Only a God of love, of infinite love, a love so unconditional that it does not care about the sin and the wrong. No, it deeply cares, but it is willing to bear the burden of it for you and for me. What kind of compassion? Sorry, what kind of love? It's God who shows his love for us in this way. Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. What kind of compassion would cause an infinitely holy God to come down into the mud 
and the mire of human corruptness and selfishness and war and lust and evil and vanity, jealousy and resentment and take the guilt of that foul, selfish evil and the sin of you and me, what kind of God has that kind of compassion? It is the peculiar glory of Jesus to show the infinitude of compassion that God has. As the Apostle Paul said to the Galatians chapter three, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took our sin upon himself. What kind of God would restrain himself from all his power and glory and beauty and majesty and look like Jesus did, a poor ragamuffin carpenter in a backwater country? It's a God of infinite grace. Jesus has a particular glory as the God-man, as the mediator, as the infinitely glorious God become the infinitely humble, contained, weak, vulnerable human being so that the fullness of the magnitude of God, his glorious power, and the fullness and magnitude of his love and compassion and mercy and grace would be so combined we could never forget it. His glorious holiness and his willingness to be judged as unholy put together. That is the magnificent particular glory of Jesus who for our sake, who knew no sin, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, the glory, the sweet, sacrificial, substitutionary glory of God is revealed most beautifully, most clearly, most unforgettably in Jesus. Meditate upon it. Meditate and praise the glory of the one who died and then rose. And if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, meditate on a God who could be this loving for you, that he would do this for you. Take a moment now while I read these words and meditate. The gospel concerning his son descended from David according to his flesh, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. Jesus Christ our Lord. Take a moment. Ask for his glory to fill you. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the glory and the beauty of God in such a remarkable way. But Easter is not simply for us to look at the glory he has in himself, but it is for us to look at the glory he shares with us. And the second text, 1 Corinthians, gives us a few elements of what he shares because Jesus doesn't hoard his glory. He gives freely parts of his glory to us. Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 15, was a religious opponent of Christianity 
who spent his time persecuting and imprisoning Christians until he physically met Jesus while traveling. Having met Jesus, the risen Jesus, he became a Christian. And he notes at least three kinds of glory that Jesus shares with us. Firstly, from verses 12 to 20 in your bulletin, a glorious assurance. A glorious assurance. He says here, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. He says, this is a fact of history and Christianity stands or falls on it. But he did rise. And I saw him. 300 other people saw him. The Matthew 28 passage ends with them seeing him and him saying to them, greetings. Paul here says that Christianity is historically verifiable and true. And I need to tell you that if you're a Christian, you have often doubted whether it is true. The culture we have in is very skeptical of all religious claims, Christian claims along with them. And Christianity, unlike many religions, claims not to just be a religion, but to be a settled fact of history. So it poses a greater threat to those who believe in the truth of facts and history. So when the cultural pressure turns up or life begins to throw us afflictions, is it not true, men and women who are Christians here, that we wonder? We do. You do, I do. It's good to know he really rose from the dead. Despite the garbage you're going through, despite the tragedy your family is enduring, despite the difficulties at work or at home, he rose from the dead for you. His love is constant and true. You can depend on it. You can fall back on it. You can trust in it. And you can endure because of it. There's a second kind of doubt that requires assurance that's implicit and embedded in this, and that is this. Does God really love me? One of the great struggles of being a Christian after you've become a Christian is that you have an increasing awareness of what a selfish... Good thing I censored myself. What a selfish person you are. And you begin to see how beautiful God is and you begin to see how unbeautiful your soul is. It creates a radical dissonance and a discouragement. How can God love me? How? Christians constantly struggle with God's love for us. Because if anyone treated us the way we treat God, we would disown that person and we know it because we sin grievously and infinitely and constantly against him. And the resurrection says to you and to me, stop. My love is as constant as it ever was. Because when my son went to the cross, he knew every single sin that you did, do, and will do. He knew it all. He looked your sin in the face and in love went to the cross for you. In love rose for you. In love is praying for you and in love will come back for you. 
Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. I say to you, you have seen me, you do not believe, but all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I would lose none of all that he has given me. If you've given your life to Jesus, he won't let you go. Because the same love that brought him to the cross raised him from the dead, brought him to heaven where he's praying for you and interceding for you and will bring him back to claim you. All your sins are forgiven. Closely tied to this first promise, this promise of a glorious assurance is the glory of the hope that he has for us. It says here, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And it says, for as by a man came death, so by a man also has come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Each in his own order, Christ first, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, we only have time to scratch the surface of this truth, so I will buzz through it. I encourage you, if you are in small groups, do a small group study on this in more depth. But what this says is that as Christ rose, he was the first fruits. So that everyone who believes in him will become spiritually one with him, united to him, and we too will rise. Did you hear that? You will rise as he did, with bodies like he had. Not from, from this broken world, but new bodies. New bodies fit for a new world that you will inhabit as he does. Now, some of us really enjoy our bodies right now. <laughs> you are the few, the proud, the naive. You are too young to know how bad your body will betray you later on in life. I'm here to give testimony to how badly it will betray you later on in life. I never really enjoyed my bodies. I was smart enough, young enough to dislike my body even as a teenager. At 60 now, I am wise enough to know I was right all along. Ha! But these verses say that the glory of a resurrected body, an unblemished, free from decay and disease body, free from pain and limitations body, that body will be yours someday. That body will look, make your present body look like a rotten tomato. <laughs> and even if your new body doesn't have abs like social media has abs, you won't care. And neither will I, because we won't care about abs. Won't that be a glorious day? <laughs> Have just another piece of that tuxedo cake, because it doesn't matter. You're not going to have your body decay. You're not going to get cancer. You're not going to die. Not only that, you're going to look at other people, and you won't care if they have abs either, because you will be free in your mind from envy and resentment 
and comparison and jealousy and all the junk that makes us hate our bodies now and hate others who have better bodies now and wish we looked like someone else. We will know this troop in our deepest being. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Psalm 139 verse four. And not only a new body. Men and women, this hope entails a cosmos, a new heaven, a new city worthy of your new body. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. There will be no more anxiety and no more fears. You will inhabit a world so perfect that your body will barely feel perfect enough for it. Imagine that because Christ was the creator of this world and he is the recreator of the next and that is the hope he presents to anyone who comes to faith in him. Not only the glory of his assurance and being with him, the glory of the hope that he inherits is the hope you will and finally there is this glorious reign at the end. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. <clears throat> I promised myself a Lord of the Rings quote. I haven't done one in two weeks. Suck it up. Is it true that everything sad will become untrue? Yes, Samwise Ganji. That's what Jesus does. Justice will finally reign. All the injustice that so frustrates you and me right now, and it is everywhere, it will be made right because justice himself, whose name is Jesus, will reign and bring that justice home. And when that has happened, shall come this song worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them say, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And that has begun now. In you who are Christians, your soul, your inner being has been resurrected. He has come into you. He is dwelling inside of you. He has ensured the future for you. He has assured you of his love. He has ensured your hope and he is beginning his reign. The future is erupting into the present. Eternity has already invaded time. Revelation 21.5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Rejoice. He is risen, and you are rising. Sadness and sin are slowly dying. Injustice will be left crying, but peace she is flying into you and me. And so shall she for eternity, for he is making all things new. And we will be his, and he will be ours. And grace shall reign joy hour upon hour to every corner of the cosmos so that to the uttermost we may be free. Free of sin, free of pain, and Jesus shall reign glorious 
upon every nation, and every nation shall bow, and every tongue shall confess. He is risen, for indeed He is risen and is making all things new. Rejoice. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you make all things new by the resurrection of the Son of God. And we rejoice. Thank you for the glory of you and the glory you give. We praise you. Amen. Please rise for the song of response.